Good morning. He's risen. He's risen indeed. There we go. We've got 10 of us in here saying it, so uh, I'm sure you're saying it in your house too. And the good news is the resurrection means you've made it through Lent. We've taken this long and difficult tour, a reflective tour of our own hearts and lives. And what, what we realize today is that everything we've seen there, all the death and the darkness that we wrestle with, is no match for the truth that we celebrate. He is risen indeed. And today we come appropriately to the end of Mark's gospel. Uh, we've been seeing how Mark is presenting this story of Jesus to help clear up the misunderstandings about what it means to be the Messiah. And we'll be at the end of Mark 15 and the beginning of Mark 16. Last week we saw this crucifixion played out as, as an actual coronation, how the gospel and the kingdom turns everything upside down and, and, and how God wins through what appears to be losing. But today we'll pick up the text in uh, chapter 15, verse 42. I'm going to read it in two sections. And we'll start with uh, 15:42 through 16:1. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth. He took down the body. He wrapped it in the linen. He placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. I, I want to focus in on this first part today, because one thing that can often be lost in our celebration of resurrection is that resurrection always starts with death. It's, it's a day of celebration, and we come out of this dark and reflective season of Lent to be thankful that death has been swallowed up in life, and we'd like to leave the darkness behind fully. But it's still a reality that we live with. This idea of death and darkness is something we'd like to forget. We saw that all throughout our focus in Lent on Jeremiah, that we just, we want to leave it behind. The, the, the people in Jeremiah wanted to get Jeremiah to shut up, be quiet, stop telling us these hard Things, and they would look for, for other prophets who would tell them what they wanted to hear. Jeremiah even wrote them a letter in exile, and they wanted to disregard it because it didn't say they were coming home. It said, build houses, plant gardens, pray for the prosperity of the city you're in, Babylon. You see, we, we don't like hard truths. We don't like bad news, but it is a part of the whole story. Lent's a part of this celebration of resurrection because it brings us face to face with the death that Jesus came to overcome. And even here, Mark doesn't skip the deadness of the situation. He, what he describes here is a solemn process of honoring. Joseph of Arimathea, it says he's a prominent member of the council. This guy's connected himself waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a believer. He was a follower. He takes a risk and he boldly goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. And he gets it. And then he takes some linen cloth 
He took down the body, he wraps it, and he places it in a tomb. Now that was in preparation for the anointing that would typically happen, but the timing of Jesus' death this close to the Sabbath meant it would have to wait until the Sabbath was over. And you see the women in the first verse of chapter 16 heading to do that. But I want to stop for just a minute and look at this action of Joseph because in that action, what he did, lies a powerful yet neglected metaphor. Something really important we have to see. And, and to see it, I want you to slow your mind down a bit. I want you to take a deep breath in and out and just imagine Joseph and what he did. The Gospel of John tells us Joseph was a follower of Jesus, but secretly because he was afraid of the Jews. And how many of you can identify with that, right? We believe, but there's times that we just kind of keep it quiet so that we don't get flack from other people. There may be opinions that we feel like God wants us to share and we're just quiet. But this Joseph, one who had some power, he was a member of the council. He'd sat quietly by and he'd watched the trial. He'd seen the torture and now the death of the one that he had loved secretly and followed. And how many of us have regrets in our own following of Jesus, right? There's times where we just feel like, oh, I should have, I've let him down. I should have spoken out. I should have acted. Things we wish we had done. And for Joseph, now he's dead. And Joseph does the only thing he can do. He screws up his courage. He goes to Pilate and he asks for the body. He wants to plan and act out one final act of love and devotion for this man he had followed, but secretly. I, I don't know if you've ever been with someone when they died. But if you have, you know it's, it's a sacred kind of moment. There's a quiet and a stillness. It's painful. But it, it's a time, you, you know they're no longer there, but their body still is. And there's, there's these acts of respect and honor that we pay them in those moments. I just want you to imagine what's going through Joseph's mind as he, he takes the body down. That can't have been an easy process. And he wraps it in linen and he places it in a tomb. With all those pain of the, 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 the expectations where he felt like he had let Jesus down, of the secrets he had kept for fear of the Jews. And he, in this one last act of devotion, he, he pays his, his respects to Jesus. And I, I want you to think, if, if that had been you, if you'd been able to do that, how would you have touched the body of Jesus? As you think about your regrets, as you think about your love for him, how would you have touched him, taken him down, wrapped him, and placed him? You know, I think, I think we all would have done it with, with sadness, yes, but with gentleness, with love, with respect. And, and it's important, as we think about the deadness of this moment, to, to feel how we would have touched the body of Jesus, Jesus had we been Joseph. And as we feel it, to hear what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. You see... We do touch the body of Christ each and every day in our interactions with each other, in the conversations that we have, in the ways that we engage or don't engage, because each one of us is the body of Christ. 
And it's important to, to wrestle with that. We'll come back to it at the end, but, it, but it's important that we let it sink in because as Mark continues with his story, it is not the ending you would expect. Let me read chapter 16. I'll start again with verse 1 and read to verse 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, stopping there is a bit of a challenge, especially for those of us who like everything uh, clear and concise. And it's a great example of how the Bible doesn't always conform to our expectations of how it should be and how it should be laid out. Why? And, and you may say, Jeff, but why stop at verse 8? Why not continue? Why not read the rest of Mark? Well, I stop there because of an unsettling footnote. Most of you most likely in your Bibles or on your phone or your app, have a, a line between verse 8 and verse 9 and a footnote or a side note that says something like this. The earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. It somehow marks what we, we read off from verses 9 to 20. And, and there's two main questions that come to mind when you think of why. First, why is this footnote there? And to, to understand that, you have to kind of grasp what happens when they translate the Bible. It's not like we've had one copy of the Bible passed down Greek and Hebrew, and we've had thousands of manuscripts. And when people translate the Bible, they look at all these manuscripts that have been passed down for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they translate from that to get exactly what was, what was there. And, and what your footnote tells you is verses 9 to 20, the earliest manuscripts, the ones that are closest to the actual event, don't have this section. And it, it seems to be, now, there are these things called scribal editions where the, the people translating or copying the scriptures would add things into the margin or into the text. Just, and they're very, very rare. And usually you can always see them because you compare them with other texts and you realize, oh, it's not there. That's been added later. Well, it seems, you know, that uncomfortable nature we feel when these women are afraid and run away and tell nobody, it seems that some of the scribes felt the same way. And they, they kind of pulled from other stories of what they knew had, that had happened and they wrote down, okay, but this is what happened after that. That's what looks like happened. Now, I've, I know this is a bit confusing maybe for some of you, but if in the online bulletin this week, I sent out a link to a great little article that kind of explains all the details around it, and, and I'm not going to spend the next 45 minutes trying to explain that. You can read that article. But most scholars, most people that are aware of the text don't believe that 9 to 20 was actually written by Mark. So then that brings us to the second question. Why is it still there? Because in a lot of the early writings, 
uh, and a lot of these manuscripts, it was there, but very often they would reference it as a different portion. Even people in the early church as early as 300 and 400 would talk about this passage and they would include it, but they would say, but it's not written by Mark. That article will tell you all about that. And so today's translators, when they translate it, they feel like we've got to do justice to the whole story. So we're going to put it in there, but we're going to tell you that it's most likely extra. It's most likely not how Mark ended his gospel. And since we've been focusing on Mark's telling of the story through this whole series, I want to stop where Mark stopped at the end of verse 8. But if you stop there, it's not a great ending. I found this article by Erin Vroom and she says, Remember, the gospel writers are supposed to be convincing us of the gospel. And although Mark gives readers a gripping tale of Jesus' life, we arrive at the end and his version is missing everything we would expect. Why did Mark include women? who were culturally less credible witnesses than men. Why didn't he include a single sighting of Jesus to prove that he had risen from the dead? Why does he include the obvious human failure of the women's fear and disobedience in response to the gospel? Did he forget to conclude the story? And it's a really good question, right? When you look at how Mark ends at verse 8, Mark has Jesus risen and not here, but where? Right? He's not even in the text. We see the empty tomb, the stones rolled away, the angels there saying Jesus isn't here. He's risen. He is not here. See the place where they, where they laid him. But we never see Jesus. And, and the women are told to go tell the disciples and Peter to head into Galilee. And how do they react? Verse 8, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, we do know from other stories that the women eventually did tell people, right? And it's not hard to imagine. You've done that too when you've had an experience and you thought, I can't, I can't, I can't even say anything about it. This is the worst thing. And then one person asks you about it and then you just lay it all out, right? You know, I can't tell anybody. I've got to keep it quiet. But it's too much to carry. And so when one person asks it, all, we've done that. The question for... For Mark is, why didn't he go on? Why did he stop there? Why did he purposely end? Why end the story like this? Why not show Jesus? Why not give the full reaction of what the women did? Why not end on a more positive note, Mark? It's a good question. It's one that the later transcribers, I think, wrestled with, which is why they added those extra verses. But Mark doesn't seem to care about closure. He doesn't want you necessarily to feel like it's over. When, it, when, when the story's done. Mark leaves the listener hanging. And if you remember the layout of the gospel, we've talked about this. The first eight chapters are all these stories about Jesus. Uh, four to seven are these parables that Jesus tells. And it kind of, that first section kind of ends with people saying, who is this guy? It's kind of up in the air. And then he moves on to, to focus in on the disciples in, in chapters eight to ten. And kind of the key story there is this transfiguration moment where they see Jesus glorified. And, and as they're coming down the mountain, he says, you can't tell anybody about this until I've risen from the dead. And the disciples say they, they kept the matter to themselves. And it says in, in Mark 9, 10, they kept the matter to themselves discussing what, quote, rising from the dead meant. There's still this idea. Who is this guy? What's going on? And then here in the third section, you see again, Mark ends with it kind of up in the air. 
I think he ends the story the same way with the women fleeing in fear and not saying anything to anybody because he wants to invite us to answer that question that's been asked in all three sections. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? It's an invitation for us to actually take part in the end of the story. And, and when I do this, I'm in good company because I found this, I, I was thinking this, and I went back and looked at the Bible Project video on Mark. I'm going to show you the last minute and 40 seconds of that video because I think they agree with me because they're so smart. We'll run the video. After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb, and on the first day of the new week, two women from his disciples come to the tomb, and they discover that the tomb is empty, the stones rolled away, and an angelic man informs them that Jesus isn't here, that he's risen from the dead. And so he orders them to go and tell this good news to the other disciples that Jesus is alive, that he'll meet them back up in Galilee. And the women, they're freaked out. Mark says that they fled from the tomb in terror, telling no one, for they were afraid. And that's how the book ends, with Jesus' disciples showing the same kind of fear and confusion that concluded Acts 2 and 1. Now, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the Gospel of Mark has more to its ending, where Jesus appears, he speaks to his disciples, but there's also a note there telling you that that ending is not part of the original book, that it's only found in later, less reliable manuscripts. Now, it's possible that the original ending got lost, or that Mark actually never finished writing his account, but it's more likely that this abrupt ending is intentional to make a point. The entire story has focused on the shocking claim that puzzled Jesus' disciples from beginning to end, that it's the suffering, crucified, and risen Jesus who's the Messiah, the Son of God. That God's love and upside-down kingdom were revealed as Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so this story ends without closure, and it forces you, the reader, to grapple with this very strange and scandalous claim about Jesus. And are you going to run away like the women? Or are you going to recognize Jesus as your king and go and tell the good news? And only you can answer that question. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about. You see, Mark ends his story unfinished, which if you read Mark, you get that from him. He, he, he just moves, 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 and he's trying to engage you. He's trying to keep you involved. And, and it makes sense when you remember the very, the way he starts in Mark 1, 1, he says, the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ Jesus, Messiah, the Son of God, the beginning. And it only makes sense that he leaves. He says, this is just the beginning, guys. The, what are you going to do with this message? Who is this? What does it mean that the Messiah died and then he rose from the dead? What does it mean that the tomb is empty? See, it's a question for us. It's a question about responding to the resurrection. So the women respond at least temporarily in fear and confusion. And it's like Mark is saying, well, what about you, though? What are you going to do with this empty tomb? That really is the question of the day. How do we respond to this message of life even while we live in a world tainted by death? How do we respond? There's two ideas that I see. I'm going I'm to share them both. The second one I'm going to dig in a little bit because it leads us right to this table the first thing I see in the text has to do with the absence of Jesus from the scene. You do not see him in Mark's closing. But seeing Jesus is in the text, verse 16. 
but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And this is good advice for us because often as we look around in our lives, it's hard to find Jesus there, especially in these moments of darkness and death and struggle. We're like, where are you? And Mark reminds us that we can trust that obedience will lead to sight. Go tell the disciples, go into Galilee, and there you'll see him. And it's a key spiritual principle. It has to do with the life of faith, this fact that we walk by faith and not by sight. And often the key to seeing Jesus present in our circumstances starts with us being faithful in obedience. When Jesus was asked in John 7 to prove who he was, he says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, obedience, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. You see, the women are told they're to go and to spread the word and then they'll see him and they run away in fear. Now, like I say, we know from other writers, they push past that. They told the others and, and, and finally that they were able to see the risen Jesus. Mary Magdalene even sees him in the garden. Remember, she mistakes him in this poignant scene for the gardener. And there he is. But, but they're told first to go do this, go tell, and then you will see him. And we have to trust that obedience leads to sight. And, and even, even that idea that we obey and then we see what he's done motivates that obedience. We have this desire to see him. In 1 John 3, John writes, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope of seeing him in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In other words, this desire to see him and to be made like him motivates our obedience. This faithful obedience will lead to sight. And the, the second idea, that's, that's the first thing I really see in this text. Trust that obedience leads to sight, even when you don't see him. And the second one goes back to what I talked about at the very beginning, that we need to re recognize the body of Christ. Now, I'm taking this phrase from 1 Corinthians. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, and he writes about their, the way they're celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper. And they're not doing it well. It's a love feast, and some people are showing up early, and they're eating all the food, and the people that come later that need the food don't get any. And he starts telling them, you, you guys are, it's not about you taking care of your needs when you come to this table. And in 1129, he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, for years, I used to be terrified of that. I remember one time I, I grew up in a small, this is confession time, maybe I've told you this before, small community, and we had a little country church up on the side of the hill, and you had Sunday morning church and Sunday night church, and I was probably five years old, and I'd ride my bike, seven years old, maybe ride my bike to church, and I got there early on Sunday night, and I went in, and the communion was still up front, and I wasn't old enough, I didn't, hadn't made a commitment yet, and I... <laughs> I walked up there, I thought, I've got to try that stuff because I never get it in church. So I poked it back, a piece of bread, crunchy, crunchy, right, and, and the juice. And I remember hearing this verse later and thinking, oh my goodness, I'm condemned forever. I am cast out because of what I've done. But what I see here, when you put it in the whole context of 1 Corinthians 11, he's saying, when you guys don't realize that the body of Christ is you, now you are the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. 
and every one of you is a part of it. When you, when you come here selfishly just to get what you want and not realize that we are all the body, when you don't recognize the body of Christ is walking by you each and every day, you drink condemnation on yourself because it's, it's, it's a, you're missing the whole point. See, that means you, we care, we serve those around us. And, and in this table and in this passage, we see some basic premises, basic ideas about resurrection life, what Jesus has come to give. The first we, we talked about, we have to remember resurrection life starts with death. The table we come to today reminds us of the broken body of Jesus and his blood that was poured out for us. And see, he, he calls us to follow the same pattern. Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see, Paul got this idea of death. We, we have to die to come into this table, says, I don't have what I need. And Paul would go so far in Galatians 2.20 to celebrate this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that's the irony of resurrection life, this counterintuitive nature that by dying to ourselves and our desires, by coming to this table and saying, you have what I need, I can't do it. That, that starts with death. This resurrection life starts with death of ourself. And in that common death to self that comes as we commit our lives to Jesus, resurrection life begins to unite us. That's why the way we treat other people is so important. That's why I want you to think about your in interactions with other brothers and sisters is the way you touch the body of Christ. There is no me and you in the church. There is us. And the resurrection life that flows through the Trinity flows through us. And it unites us. It makes us one. In Ephesians 4, the goal is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ, me and you, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This resurrection life starts with death, but it also pulls us together. Remember, it says, now you are the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, and every one of you is a part of it. This, this, this table, this death and resurrection that comes, it starts with our dying, but, but, but once we admit our need, it unites us into one body. It's what Jesus' desire all along in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for those who live in hope, attend Grace Baptist Church or watch it online, who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. What is that? That we're going to be one the way the Trinity is one. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, in coming to the table today, 
We're acknowledging our own need to die to self. We're acknowledging that we've been brought together in one. And, and, and we're being nourished by what Christ did for us, which is the third thing. Resurrection life empowers us. I think this is one of the things we underestimate when it comes to the life that Jesus gives. You know, our lives are so tainted with death that we don't even get what real life is like. Even at our best, at your best moment of your best day and your best life, that life is still tainted with death. And yet the resurrection life that comes from God's death and resurrection fills us. It empowers us. It literally is the force of God flowing through our lives. Doing things far beyond our capacity. Jesus, as he left the disciples, he came to them in Matthew 28 and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just think about that. All authority that exists has been given to Jesus. And then he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And his presence meant that his power would flow through them. Acts 1.8, once again, another ending thing. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this comes back to what Paul in, in that passage we've already talked about in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Do you get that? Do you get that Christ actually, who we are is gone and he is in us somehow. It, this resurrection life empowers us. And in coming to this table, we remember that, that, that the life in us comes from the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That every breath is a gift from God. That the very life of God has been given to us. And it starts by dying to ourselves, being unified into the body of Christ, being empowered to the, by the Spirit. And then what that does, that resurrection life invites others Chapter 16, verse 7 of Mark, but go tell his disciples and Peter, go tell them. You can't have this resurrection life and keep it. Those who are brave enough to surrender to the death of their own selves, they make space for God to come and transform them at the deepest levels. And they're united into the body of Christ. They're empowered by the Spirit. And there's no way that they can keep that in. You can't help but share it. You know, it's, it's like... Can you imagine a married couple? They 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 don't do an engage, They don't do a a, a, a birth announcement. They're, we're pregnant. We're going to have a baby, right? We've seen that happen in the past. Everybody tells that. Can you imagine the baby coming and then saying, "Oh yeah, well, okay, well, yeah." Should we tell people? I don't know. What do you think? Think well, Everybody has to tell that when you're engaged to get married. When there's good news, when people get a uh, they've they've had a cancer diagnosis and the doctor says you're cancer free. Can you imagine them keeping that a secret? They can't. And resurrection life, when it's fully understood, cannot be contained. In 2 Corinthians 5, it's a long section, I'm going to read it to you, but for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and raised them again. There's that death. And so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. See, we've, we've become unified here. 
And though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do know so no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There's this empowerment. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. (laughs) This morning at six o'clock, I was up, I just finished my reading and I was starting into my sermon and I got a phone call and it was the alarm company. And they said, there's a motion alarm that has been set off in the front office at the church. And my first thought was, it's Easter. (laughs) Something's moving at the church. So exciting, right? Obviously, it wasn't. Somebody had tried to get in the window and the window had been left. Nothing happened, right? they, They heard the alarm and ran out. But I just thought, even as I thought about that, I thought, you know what? The beauty of that is here's somebody trying to break into the church on Easter morning. And yet, Resurrection life overcomes that. It, 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 it calls us to invite that very person who would come and take from us to taste what God has given us. He's risen, he's risen indeed, and maybe you don't see him, and maybe Mark's unfinished story is a call to remind you, trust, obey, you'll see him, it will come. And to let him lead you in this dying to yourself, To let him help you see the body of Christ all around you and all your interactions. And to be united to that. And to rest in the fact that he will empower you in ways that you cannot imagine as you trust him. And in that empowerment, you can share that news. The greatest news ever given. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. God, as we come to this table we are so thankful and we just ask that you would help us to 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 make way for this resurrection life to obey to follow to see to trust that you will come you will fill you will empower you will draw us and unite us one to another and it all started with you taking our sin upon yourself offering your life And then death couldn't hold you. And because of that, we can approach you. We can be with you. The the curtain of the temple has been ripped open. And you've been set free, set loose in the world to encounter us and for us to encounter you. We thank you for this. And pray that you will make this true of us as we seek to, to be a vehicle for your resurrection life as it flows through us into the community around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. That's, that's, that's the beauty of today. And what we remember that we can, that death has been overcome. We still see it all around us, but it is temporary. It is on its way out. And we have the benefit and the joy of taking part in resurrection life. One of the ways you can come awake, there's a prayer that I keep coming back to because we don't see each other as much as we used to. 
And I pray it for you. Paul wrote it. So I'm in good company following his steps. But I want to encourage you in Ephesians 1, 16 to 22. Write that down on a card this week. Put it on your mirror. Put it someplace you see it. And pray it for all of us. Because we are the body of Christ. Living out resurrection life. Here it is. See if I can read it without crying. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Go and live in that life this week. Amen.